Hi, everyone. Dom Fabulara here, and thank you so much for joining me again. Vader Live, as we are here every Tuesdays at 2 o'clock on both Facebook and YouTube. And I thank you so much for having the time to join us and make the time. Today is a pretty special occasion because in all these interviews that I've done, there are some topics that come up that we never delve into deep enough. Well, today we're going to get to this special discussion, which is really on mental health and substance abuse. And this is a challenge that we have had going on for years, but there are some people that want to share their story that I think will be extremely helpful. And it's so honorable that they have joined along on this way. So I want to first bring on a gentleman who has played with Willie Nelson, Chris Cornell, Macy Gray, my guy, Shakira Meatloaf, Cheryl Crow, Alanis Morissette. Would you please, it goes on and on forever. Please welcome Mr. Victor Indrizo. Hey, how's it going, Don? Victor, thank you so much for joining us here. And uh, it's just so great to have this group that I'm going to bring on to join us and talk about some of the challenges that you've had in your life and ideas of how we could share this to assist anyone else who is in the, the, the distance of hearing our voice. Thank you so much for joining. Yeah, my pleasure. This next gentleman I'd like to bring on is a fantastic drummer, percussionist, and a record producer, Common Sense, Lisa Marie Presley, Sugar Ray Jewel, Joe Walsh, of course, Foo Fighters, Chicago, Taylor Hawkins, and the Coattail Riders. He's got his own production company, which is Modern Illumination Production, and of course, performing and playing back with the great Stevie Nicks. Would you please welcome Mr. Drew Hester? How are you, Don? Thanks for having me on. This is going to be great. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, Drew. Thank you so much for your time, guys, and this is so great. I want to bring on someone else now, and a tremendous multi-instrumentalist. I mean, singer, songwriter, engineer, producer, another amazing talent who really has a credit that goes on. You guys, I am so amazed at all that you guys are doing, but this next gentleman, Green Day, Joe Walsh, Dr. Dre, Pitbull, Goo Goo Dolls, Dweezil Zapper, Avenged Sevenfold. I mean, it really kind of goes on, and Weezer's who I love when Jason's playing. Would you please welcome Jason Freeze? Hey! hey. <laughs> Jason, thanks so much for joining us and being a part of this. This is really, really fantastic. We are still waiting for Joe to join us. So when Joe joins us, we'll bring him into the screen here and, uh, and get it going on here. But I think this is fantastic to have this kind of time. Joe Walsh will be joining us. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Let's start here. You you guys have fantastic careers that you have built from hard work, younger, putting time into the studying of your instrument, the building of your business and your career, and you really have put incredible time into the development of what you have now, which is this incredible influence and legacy that you have built. I want to start with Victor. Victor, as a young kid, you started playing. You played out of the love of it. What got you involved in playing drums? Uh, it was really just uh, my mom loved music. Uh, I don't know. I fell in love with music at an early age, and it, uh, and it was an escape. Uh, music was my first drug, really. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that was uh, – I, I had a kind of rough childhood. Uh, there was a lot of alcoholism and drug abuse and uh, physical abuse in my home. And uh, music was that escape for a long time. Well, that's an interesting point when you talk about music being being the first drug. And and listen, I think we all can attest to that, that uh, even for myself as a young child with my self-esteem issues that were very, very low and my stammering challenges, music was my escapism that helped uh, to not only, you know, allow me to escape, but also helped to heal me in many ways. Yeah. 
I got a good bite. Drew, yourself, starting out young, you started playing music. What got you involved in drumming? Um, I always loved drums. So I started playing uh, when I was very young, you know, pots and pans, pillows, that whole thing. I got my first drum set out of a, uh, out of a trash can. The kid across the street was pretty wealthy and they he got a he got a like this drum set for christmas and like within like i don't know a few months it was out in the trash can i woke up early and i just saw these drums sticking out of the trash can and i went across the street as a kid and took them all out and brought them home and made them all work and um and i just love playing drums i've always loved uh playing and uh and that's kind of where it got me started um i didn't have I didn't really have any abuse. My parents were divorced when I was young. I think that probably affected me a little bit uh, or a lot, whatever. Um, and I was kind of a alone child. Lock, what do you call it? Lock and key kid, you know? So I was able to do drugs like nonstop all the way through high school. My mom worked really hard and uh, she was gone all the time. So I was able to, you know, do whatever I wanted to after school, school days, weekends, it didn't matter. Um, and I love, and I had a group of guys that we partied and played music with. And that's, uh, that's how I got started. So it's interesting. And we'll talk more about it. So that those early days of the tribe that you were with, so to speak, was kind of just all doing it and just to kind of fit in with the group. That's a part of how I think everyone begins their process. Yeah. Jason, I got to go for you as far as what, when I say multi-instrumentalist, I mean, you really are, are an incredibly talented person that, that, can, that can really have access to several instruments and, you know, songwriting and engineering, producing. What got you involved with music at an early age? Uh, well, my dad was the, the conductor of the Disneyland band when I was born. So I kind of grew up in the Disneyland band room at Disneyland and there are just instruments everywhere and my dad was really influential for my, my brother and I were, it was just like, there were just instruments everywhere in our house, you know? And, uh, I think, I think we tried out 20 instruments before we figured out what we were really interested in. You know what I mean? Like you would sit there and we played the trumpet and go, Oh, that's fine. But not really into it. And then I try something else. Oh, that's fine. And then you finally figure the one that you're, you gravitate towards, you know? And I think, that was it. It was just kind of music was just all around us at all times. It was like, I kind of, I kind of like mirror it to like the family where the dad is, uh, is your little league coach and he loved playing baseball. And so he would bring you and you would watch all the baseball games with your dad and you would go in the backyard and play baseball. We were like that, except for it was just music. It was, we didn't play sports, you know, like other kids, other kids were playing little league and soccer and basketball. And we were just always playing music. What a beautiful influence to have that music was that a part of your life and at an early age, which is just beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Victor, I, let's let us start with you. Let's let, let, let's cut to the chase here now. So, I mean, here you are now. You're 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 playing music. How? What was your age about when you first started getting involved in 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 substance that was was kind of added on to to stuff that was maybe not have been as healthy mentally and physically? But how old are you when you started? I guess, you know, there was like teenage years, start smoking pot and that I, I, I liked that escape, but then really in my twenties and in the nineties in LA, I started working and then kind of hanging around a crew of people that were trying harder drugs. 
and I just went through a divorce. And it was one of those things I thought I would never do, and then I ended up doing it. And uh, yeah, I was off to the races, basically. And, and and at first it was really like, I'm not going to be like these guys. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to control this because music did mean so much to me and I wanted to work. And I, and at first I was a very functioning kind of addict where I could still show up and, and work and, and be high uh, until I couldn't. Uh, sometime in the 90s and hanging out with the likes of Scott Wyland and that kind of crew and, and it just got really bad. And, and got desperate enough. And matter of fact, I, I learned about recovery from going to an intervention for Scott. Uh, mm-hmm. And at, at that intervention, there was a guy named Dallas Taylor who ended up being my first sponsor. He had written a book about his life. And I took that book home and I read it and I was like, man, this is me. Like, I need help. I didn't, I, at the time, I didn't realize how bad mm-hmm. off I was, but it would be another couple of years before I actually got it. And actually, one of the first meetings that I went to was with Dallas and with Joe. Uh, I went to go speak on the panel with those guys. Uh, but it, it, it was a long process of trying to figure out. Uh, I didn't want to admit to myself that I was an addict. I thought I was smarter than that. Uh, but ultimately, I, I needed help. Boy, what's interesting is that, so you're reading this book, what was it in that book that had you feel like you were relating to what was what the storyline was? I think it was just how much he was using drugs to mask a lot of pain. For me, at, at a certain point, it wasn't like, oh, this is a party, this is fun. It was really like, I, I never felt like I fit in and I could just kind of numb out, you know? And uh, it was, yeah, it was about the feelings. And then that thing of like, not being able to stop. I remember when I wanted to stop the first time and I couldn't, that, that scared me. And then I realized that I had become the things that I didn't want to become. And I was, I felt trapped. Interesting. Well, I want to get more into that too, for sure. Drew, where would you say you were saying you were hanging out with people in your, in your early teens and you didn't have, you didn't have the um, parental guidance. I mean, you, your mom was there, but you had like a lot of freedom. Yeah. So, I mean, my thing started when I was young. Um, I got a job when I was 12 washing dishes at a, at a local restaurant and they, they did, they had Coke there. They always had blow available. Everybody was doing it. And what a great job. Yeah. yeah. I could work an 18 hour day. No problem. And my mom was gone. So I just would just work, dude. I wash. I'm not joking. I'd scrub pots and pans, (laughs) cut carrots, celery sticks for literally all day long. After school, on um, through the weekend. But anyways, I got I got hooked on blow at a super young age. Worked all the way through high school, made money, you know, just working jobs, playing music, doing doing, and still had like a you know busboy job, whatever. Um, and I started doing blow, and that was okay, and I was functioning, and I was playing clubs, and I got out. I went to Grove School of Music, and at that period, I kind of put it down for like that year. I really went to school and actually. My roommate at the time hated drugs, and and he was a really close friend of mine. So I, I decided, you know what, I don't want to screw up my friendship. I'm gonna and I'm going to school. I'm gonna do this, you know. And so I did. I, I stayed pretty clean through that through that year of growing going to grove school of music. That was '91. Got out. I got a job in a band. We be, with 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 a band, Common Sense, and uh, that band did pretty well. We could do like you know kind of House of Blues tour stuff, and I ended up getting more and more involved in drugs, like blow. 
and it got really bad. I got fired from the band. Um, I ended up pretty much being homeless. I lived in a in my car and I showered in an office building. Um, and then I got a couple DUIs back to back. Both, I got my second DUI driving on New Year's Eve. Stupid, you know, usual. I mean, that was just down my mind. Going to my dealer's house, had played a gig, drove to, got my second DUI. I got in front of the judge in Newport Beach and her 18 year old daughter had been killed by a drunk driver about two months before I stood in front of her. And my parents had moved to Europe and my brother was in the military. And I was pretty much like by myself, you know, it's like, I'm not going to call my, not going to call my parents and have them rescue me. I'm just, I'm, I'm in this. So I got sent to two and a half months in jail. And, um, and during that time, I prayed to God and I said, like, give me a gig in a church somewhere clean where I'm not in a bar and help me out. And I made a deal with myself to stay sober from January 1st to January 1st of next year. <clears throat> and amazingly enough, I got out of, I got out of jail and, um, and there was a, a message on my answering machine in this office building. <clears throat> Sorry. And this guy left the message saying they needed a drummer for a church. And so I, I took the job. I got the job. <laughs> Sorry. So anyway, <clears throat> I started um hanging out with sober friends. And I literally, my roommate right after that was a guy named Gannon Arnold, who was friends with Jason. And Jason was playing with Joe. And he said, hey, we need a drummer. You want to come audition? I went to audition. I got the gig with Joe Walsh. And that was probably in 99, 2000, right around there. And it changed my life. And I told myself for one year, from January 1st of 98 to January of 99, if my life wasn't different, I'd go back to doing drugs. And um, and I had a gig, you know, like the biggest gig I've ever had in my life, and uh, and I was so <clears throat> so I was thankful to Jason, who I love. And Victor, on the other hand, after Joe had kind of stopped working, sorry, I'm an emotional guy. It's all right. Bring it on, dude. Um, after that, Victor called me for Lisa Marie. It was like, hey, dude, I got this gig for Lisa Marie Presley, this audition. I can't make it. I'm just too busy. I think you'd be good for it. You should check it out. And I was like, really? And I was like, man, thank you. I went down, audition. I got the gig. And she was an amazing gig to have because I, I love her. She's a great, great person. And, um, and the job paid really well. It was like <laughs> it's an amazing, financially an amazing job. Um, so I was real thankful. Elvis money, man. Yeah, it was Elvis, it was Elvis money. Hey, I but, want the gig back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's how I bought my first house uh, was because of that gig. So yeah, I, I'm thank I'm thankful to both these guys. I love these guys, and I love that my first gig was with Joe because he had just gotten sober. He was only a few years into his sobriety, and to be part of that and to be with a group of guys um, like that was amazing and um and you know drugs are brutal man they just 
you know, we can get into it and the times, like everything everybody's going through right now. But um, I was thankful and I was thankful that somehow I made it through that year. And that that message was on my answering machine, you know, and it gave me a place to go make some money, not in a freaking bar or with my dealers nearby, you know. So anyways, that's well, what Drew, listen, thank you so much. If you think about fate speaking loud and clearly and stepping into your life to allow that message on that machine to literally become a pivot point and a peak experience that guided you in a more positive way. It's very, very powerful. And thank you guys so much for sharing this information. I know this is not easy. You know, if we talked about music and gigs and playing, that's real easy to talk about. And we'll do that at a, at a future time. This topic is so needed right now and no one's talking about this. So to have you guys open up your soul this way is incredibly appreciative. Thank you so much. Yeah. I want to go to, to Jason now. Jason, you know, as you hear these stories from Victor and Drew and you hear what's going on, just tell us what happened. How, how did you kind of get involved in the substance insanity? Yeah, it was really interesting for me because uh, I grew up in an alcoholic family. Um, my dad had a really heavy problem, but it was really crazy, though, because my mom and dad mirrored it or not mirrored it, masked it uh, so much that my dad was like a really weird drinker. Like he wouldn't drink every day and there wouldn't be alcohol bottles all over the house and he wouldn't be screaming, beating his wife and beating his kids. And he would like go on a binge for like two or three days and he would just stay in bed. And my mom would go, well, dad's sick. And we'd be like, oh, okay. You know, I've been in sick in bed before. So it was like, she was, you know, covering up. And so then we got to the point where one day when I was 11, turning 12 years old, I remember I was going from sixth grade to junior high, which is like a kind of a pretty rough time in a kid's life. Cause now you're going to be meeting all these kids from different schools and, uh, my parents just told my brother and I, they're like, we're getting divorced. And we were like, what? Like, we, we, we couldn't believe it. We, we had no idea. And we had no idea my dad was an alcoholic. And then we start connecting the dots and we're like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then we start hearing the stories. And then my dad goes to rehab. And, and so, I, you know, I grew up in that, but it wasn't like that the kind of the, the stereotypical um, alcoholic family in, in the sense that I really didn't know what was going on until I looked back at it. And then I was like, oh, I, I guess I saw those signs. But the good thing that came from it was that uh, I, I, my, my brother and I were able to witness my dad having it all and then losing it all. Like literally he had a, he had a Volkswagen van and a sleeping bag. I mean, that was it. And went from having a three-story house in Orange County, you know, to, a, a, you know, a Volkswagen bag and a sleeping bag. Uh, and uh, and then he, he got his shit together, man. He went to rehab and for two weeks. Uh, he, and, then, uh, and he's still sober today. And I thank God that... I have that as an example because, man, I don't. If I hadn't gone through that and watched him lose everything, everything, man, he lost everything, and then rebuild himself and have this amazing life that he has right now, and it's only because he got sober. I mean, he would have died, you know, if 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 he hadn't got sober. So I'm grateful that I, in retrospect, I got to witness that because if I didn't have that as an example. When shit got bad for me, which it got bad, you know, crashed my car and I couldn't, I couldn't, I, I remember I was in a rehearsal one day and it was, it, it was, uh, it was uh, on 
Valentine's Day. And of course I'd been drinking, I got the shakes and I'm, and I'm like, oh shit. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta get a Valentine's Day card. I was up in Oakland rehearsing. I was going to fly back down to Orange County that same day. And I go, I didn't get my wife or my kids a Valentine's Day card. So I was like, I'll make one. And I get a piece of printer paper and I get some markers and I'm, I'm and I, I screw up. I, I kept the card. I still have it right now. Cause it's a reminder of what, where I'll be again, if I ever drink again, but I couldn't spell the word Valentine's. And I would start, and I knew, I know how to spell Valentine's, but I couldn't, my brain could not connect to my hand. I had the shakes because I hadn't drank. And I just went, oh, this is, this is not good. I, I knew that it was, it was going downhill fast. And then I came home and I crashed my truck and I got away with it because I knew the cop kind of, and I, I was putting on a good show and uh, he was on the end of his shift. And I think he wanted to go home and I didn't hurt anybody, uh, but I took out a bus stop and ripped the rims off my truck, like off the axle, man, just ripped them straight off the axle. Um, and then I had a, a couple other things happen and I was like, and then the, the, this, the straw for me was, and this all happened within like about six months, all these things where I was just like, oh, my drinking is so bad. I, I drink every day. I can never take a day off. If I take a day off, I'm the biggest asshole. I'm such a bitter person if I don't drink. And, uh, and I was on stage and I was in Australia and we were playing, we were headlining like 65,000 people and we were the headlining band on Saturday night in Australia and something happened on stage and the singer turned around and said, Hey, play we are the champions really quick. And it was the big, you know, piano intro. And we hadn't played it in years and stuff, but I hadn't drank that day and I had the shakes and I'm like, Oh, I'm like, I, I don't know if I can pull this together right now. And I'm like, and now it's just me. There's no band. And I'm playing in front of 65,000 people. And I, I can't connect my brain to my hands because I'm so hungover and I have the shakes. And I just remember having this moment of clarity and went, I was like, God, get me through this right now and I'll never drink again. And I, I don't know how I got through it. I got through it. And the next day I found an AA meeting in Sydney. And that, that was the last day I ever drank. And I... I would like to say it's that easy. Like I was like, God, you know, get me through this. I'll never drink again. And I quit. And that was it. It was a rough road. And, and I needed a lot of friends and I needed AA heavily. Um, I needed a lot of, and I need, I need, I had, I had, I had a lot of questions I needed answered and I didn't have the answers for them. And I needed them answered because I didn't know if I could make a day. You know, I was like, I, you know, when I made a day in Australia, I, I I couldn't believe it. When I made two days and then three days, I was still like I couldn't. My 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 life was so upside down. I lost twenty five pounds in like three weeks. You know, like it 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 was it was dark, man. But I got through it. And then and then for me, it was just needing support and needing people around me that that had been through what I was going through. I needed that. Not everyone needs that. You know what I mean? It's like. Everyone's got their own path, and you know one of one of the one of the the uh, one of the most like memorable things that I remember my dad saying to me when I knew I had, I had a drinking problem, and I was talking to my dad not about my drinking problem but about alcoholics in general. I had a friend of mine who would wake up in the morning and drink, you know, a, a, a bottle of Jack the second he woke up, and I remember saying to my dad, "Going, you know, I know I'm not an alcoholic. I look at him, and then I go, man." You know, 
I thought I had a drinking problem, but I really don't because that's what a drinking problem is. And I remember my dad laughing and my dad's really cool. And my dad was like, you know what? Listen, there are thousands of types of alcoholics. Just because you, you don't wake up in the morning and drink a bottle of alcohol, you're not an alcoholic. And then I was thinking to a friend of mine that would wake up or he, he wouldn't drink alcohol for eight months. He wouldn't have a beer. But then he would black out for three days straight. He couldn't go to work. He couldn't do it. And I go, yeah, that's a, that. he's definitely an alcoholic, even though he only has three drinks a year. When he drinks, it's lights out. And, and then I started realizing, well, I guess there are. There's winos and there's the guys that, that drink light beer only. And then there's the, the functioning alcoholics. Then there's the people that lose everything. There's the people that go to jail. There's the, and then you start realizing, don't compare yourself to other alcoholics if trying to figure out whether you're an alcoholic or not, because there's thousands of types of alcoholics. And once I had that moment of clarity, then I was kind of like, oh, God, uh, maybe I do, you know, and then it got dark and really dark. And, and then the second I got sober, it was a rough road. But I'll tell you what, my life is so good right now. And I owe it all to, to, to not drinking. I don't drink and I'm, you know, one day at a time. But, man, it has changed my life. It honestly has changed my life. Boy, Jason, absolutely beautiful, you know, and, and the message that each of you were sharing, this is this is so, so deep at so many levels. You know, I've been in this business playing professionally since the age of 12. That's 55 years of me playing music. I have lost so many great friends and artists that I would have loved to have heard them in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and later on in their life. You guys are success stories that you've been able to turn this around and you are still actively performing. And here's a gentleman I want to bring on right now that is a, a musical icon. It doesn't get any deeper than this for me because this is rock and roll legend that we're going to allow. Guitarist, singer, songwriter with the James Gang, of course, with the Eagles, his own solo career. Would you please welcome the great Mr. Joe Walsh? Yeah. Hi, gang. Yeah. Is that all the applause I get? I'm used to more, I'm used to more than that. <laughs> But if that's the best you can do, okay. <laughs> Hi, Jason. Hi, Drew. I miss you guys. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you uh, for this, Drew. Uh, a couple things. A couple things. I am an alcoholic, and, and I know about other substances also. Okay? Uh, I want to say that... If, if anybody out there, if, if anything we say resonates with you, anybody who's watching this, uh, and you're kind of wondering uh, if you're an alcoholic or not, I'll save you time. Only alcoholics do that. Okay? So ask somebody for help get help covid uh social separation is absolutely horrible without a program and a fellowship of people and we all have that with with zoom and other things we have a 12-step program, which are tools to live life sober one day at a time. 
and we have a fellowship in in a twelve step program of other people. So social isolation, you don't have to isolate. You can get on every day with people who understand you. And you don't feel alone and individual and unique and one of a kind. Uh, and that keeps me grounded. I've got a couple groups of a lot of, a lot of sober guys with more time than me. I tell you what, and I get on there every day and we check in with each other and it's me too. Oh, oh, me too, me too. And we, we, we do that every day and it takes away the social isolation and the isolating is the worst thing that an alcoholic or an addict can do. To isolate uh, enables your alcoholic mind. It enables that destructive way of thinking. If you feel unique alone by yourself and one of a kind and make yourself the victim, which is what we always do. Okay, that's, that's what I wanted to say. That's most important. Anybody out there who's wondering if, an, if they're an alcoholic, you are, if you're thinking like that, okay? And ask somebody for help because uh, I wouldn't be here without the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, period. I wouldn't be alive today. But I wouldn't be here now in this in this COVID mentality if I allowed myself to feel unique, alone, individual, one of a kind, and nobody understands. And poor me. And I'm the victim. Don't do that. And I'm so grateful to have right here, you guys. You know, that's all I need today is to realize that I'm not... It's not all about me. I'm not the victim. I'm part of. And that's the thing that keeps us sober. I only got drunk once for uh, 37 years. <laughs> okay? I achieved an amount of success early uh, in, my, in my career, starting in college. And I was so terrified to get in front of people and play music that I couldn't play music. Mm. And I grew up in the 50s, uh, attention deficit, obsessive compulsive, maybe a little bit of Asperger's, throw all that shit in there, there was a cocktail that I was. Mm. And I was different than everybody in school because I, I, I was attention deficit. I could not complete homework. I couldn't do algebra. I, I couldn't. I, I couldn't get my homework in. I, I didn't know how to do it. I I couldn't complete tasks. I had great ideas. I started all these projects with great ideas, and I never finished any of them. And I was knee deep in good ideas, but I didn't know how to wrap it up. 
I didn't know how to do a term paper. I didn't know how to, to do an essay. I couldn't do it because attention deficit and obsessive compulsive and all of that, all, all the kids' stuff that they know about now, in the 50s, medical science had didn't have a clue. They, that hadn't come yet in research. You were just difficult. And that's how I grew up in the 50s, because medical science was stupid, and I had no help. And so I grew up feeling different than all the class because I went to the principal's office more than anybody else <laughs> on a regular basis for acting out, for throwing shit when the teacher turned around to write something on the blackboard, for uh, reaching over and trashing the guy next to me's book onto the floor, uh, for just, you know, blah, blah. But nobody, you know, just anything acting out because uh, I couldn't sit still, and and uh, I was different, and the kids treated me differently. Now I was funny. I found that humor hit all that. If I was funny, if I was a class clown, uh, they liked me. So I found that humor worked really good. But I couldn't get on stage when I, when that time came. I couldn't get on stage and play. I just couldn't. I terrified, terrified, shaking, hyperventilating, attention deficit. I couldn't focus. I, I couldn't play. I couldn't do it. And uh, in my mid-teens to late-teens, I discovered beer. And uh, you know what? In an attempt to self-medicate, because there were nothing medical science couldn't help me, beer, I found a couple beers, and I could go on stage and feel pretty good. At least I, I wasn't terrified. And, and I could complete the task. And that planted the seed, okay? That worked. Uh, I would walk on stage, I'd go, yeah, hey, I got this, with a little buzz going. So, and uh, it, it was an attempt to self-medicate. I wasn't drinking to party. I had some beer before I played for a long time. And the seed was planted. Well, uh, of course, beer didn't work after a while. So I tried some white wine. That worked really good. That didn't work after a while. In college, I discovered uh, the wonderful world of drugs. Uh, Cocaine worked great. Cocaine is in the Ritalin family, is which is what they give kids now, okay, for attention deficit and obsessive compulsive. Ritalin is a, is a kid's dose of something in the in the family. Cocaine is is like Ritalin, 
but Ritalin is way lower in dosage and controllable. But I discovered cocaine, and I discovered cocaine and alcohol. And hey, I could go out and kick ass on stage because I was in my own world, and I was confident, and I wasn't afraid of nothing. Okay, and so I wound up with cocaine, vodka, and camel light for I don't know. 20 years worked great. I could go in and complete and actually finish a song I was writing. I could go out and, and kick ass on stage and people went nuts. And uh, why change that? You know? And, and I had found the solution to growing up a terrified, scared, uh, dysfunctional kid. I so fixed that. Joe, you related, so you related that where you were at at that time to the success you were experiencing. Well, see, look, yeah, yeah. I achieved uh, uh, some success and it gathered momentum and, and uh, I achieved success eventually beyond my wildest dreams. So of course, why change anything? And and when I when I couldn't write anymore because I was too fucked up, my way of thinking was well, obviously I I'm not drinking nearly enough. Uh, and around and around we go. Well, the seed that was planted was actually a weed. Okay. The seed that was planted with beer uh, sprouted and grew. It was a weed. It was, it was a whole weed patch, and it ate a big hole in me where caring about anybody else disappeared. Uh, telling the truth disappeared. Um, um, God disappeared. I was God. I was in charge of everything. And if something good happened, I did that. And if something bad happened, it was because you didn't listen. So, Joe, you were surrounded with people that were enabling you and agreeing with this, this type of behavior? Well, yeah. <laughs> I was surrounded with people, and all I had to do was tell them what I needed. Hmm. And, and the eagles, you know, who knew? We were just a bunch of dumb guys that met at the troubadour, and I don't, I don't understand it. And created magic. Yeah, we created magic, yeah. and we fought, and that was part of the the creative process. And we were a band of brothers, and we all. Uh, uh, the only thing that mattered was the band to all of us. We didn't have wives we didn't have families we all lived in the same car you know uh but eventually we could do anything we wanted so we did and i was totally enabled by going out on stage everybody loved me yay standing ovations 
afterward I did so great, I figured, well, I'll reward myself and fucking stay up all night. And so the hole in me where everything good, love, caring, God uh, was there. And I took it as far as I could go. And yeah, all the guys I ran with are dead. All my buds are dead. You know, Belushi's dead. Keith Moon's dead. Uh, uh, a lot of everybody. Everybody that's dead is dead because they died before they hit bottom. And I hit bottom before I died. Let me ask this question, Joe. When, when you hit bottom, what was the turning point that you finally said, you were so used to this life before, but now I have to make change? What was that, what was that moment? Okay, well, when the Eagles broke up, I didn't know how to process that. I couldn't handle it. Uh, uh, I did not want to admit it, so I kept going. And I kept going for 12 years, pretending that I was in the Eagles. And and uh, just kept going. I, I, I couldn't handle not being in the Eagles. Everybody else got married and had a family and shit, not me. Okay, so uh, uh, I was out of money. I uh, really had spent all my money on limos uh, because I didn't want to drive and drugs and craziness. And uh, I weighed uh, about 150 I had sores all over my face. I never washed. I didn't care. I looked terrible. I didn't care. I didn't care about you. I didn't care about me. I didn't care about nothing. That was the weed patch. And I knew, I, I knew from my buddies that I was there. I knew that I was there and my doctor confirmed it. If I kept going, I was going to die. And that was sooner than later. I, I saw that coming from watching my buddies flame, crash and burn. And I knew I was there, but I didn't know what to do about it. I hadn't been sober for 30 years. I didn't know what that was. I didn't like sober people. They fucking wore ties. <laughs> I, I don't like sober people and they have jobs. The hell with them. Uh, and uh, lo and behold, uh, a godsend, okay? Don and Gwen and Irving, we all flew to Aspen. After, I don't know, 12 years? I don't know, uh, 14 years? 80 to 94, yeah. And sat me down and they said, Joe, we're thinking about doing the Eagles, put, trying it, putting it back together. We've learned a lot. And when we broke up, uh, our music stayed on yeah. FM radio yeah. for the whole 80s. So people still loved the music and we weren't forgotten. And they said, we're trying to put the, we're going to try and put the Eagles back together. We got a plan. We can't do it without you. 
And we can't do it unless you're sober. So, we're not sure you can get sober. What do you think? And I said, uh, well, you know what? I don't have much choice right now but to do something about the, this godless, hateful thing that I am. And that is a reason that I can get sober for. That's a true band of brothers. Yeah. You want to, you, you know, you, you need me in the Eagles, I'm all in. And two weeks later, I went in uh, to recovery. And it was not easy. Hardest thing I ever had to do, ever. Where'd you go at that time, Joe? I, go, I went to a place called Exodus. And where was that? Uh, Marina Del Rey. Marina Del Rey. When you first went in there, you walked in there, what was that like? I don't fucking remember. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, I remember this guy, Harold, who now is head of Music Harris. Harold came in and said, well, it looks like we're going to be working together. I've been assigned to you. And I said, well, what are you? Are you my counselor or my sponsor? Or what is this? He said, no, actually, uh, they sent me over from the hospital. Uh, I, I work in the psych ward. But they thought I was probably the only guy Uh, the only chance you have. Hmm. Because if you don't get sober, you're going to come over where I work. Hmm. And, and and it was Daniel Friedman Hospital in Marina Del Rey. Exodus is a very famous recovery center. Dallas Taylor was a counselor there. And Dallas Taylor uh, took me. And uh, so <clears throat> I did, I can't say my life got better, but my life stopped getting worse. That's what I noticed in the first month. And that was huge. How long were you there for? I was there, well, I went for two weeks and I stayed for uh, a month. I stayed for the complete program. And then I got a boathouse in Marina Del Rey uh, because I could walk to Daniel Friedman. I was an out outpatient. I did that. And, and uh, when I was over five weeks, we started rehearsal for the Hell Freezes Over album. Holy fuck. <laughs> I had never played sober. I, I didn't know how. Incredible. All that all that stuff came up from being a kid. All that stuff came back up. Terrified, didn't know how. I didn't know how to play. I never thought I'd be funny again. I never thought I could ever write anything. I I I, I thought I was gonna wear a tie and have a job. Uh but my life stopped getting worse. 
And I discovered the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is guys with me with a lot more time. I went to men's stag meetings in the valley. I discovered the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and that was it. I felt part of, I, I realized, you know what? I, I'm not, I'm just an alcoholic. I'm just an alcoholic. And for the first time, that was a club I felt that I actually belonged in. And those old crusty guys were funny. Uh, they, uh, they were functioning. They'd been sober a long time. And, uh, I grabbed onto them. And then I had what the book calls is a profound spiritual awakening. What the big book from working the steps. Uh, I realized that that godless, hateful thing that I had become the alcoholic vodka, cocaine, cigarette smoking monster. That, that didn't like anything, uh, that wasn't me. That was my alcoholic mind that had taken control for 30 years. Whatever my alcoholic mind said we were doing, we did. It's amazing what's a good idea when you've been up for three days. Uh, that's why a lot of my buddies died, you know? Jumping on a jumping off a roof might be a good idea. Killing somebody might be a good idea when you've been up for three days. Uh, that thing, that godless, hateful thing, living in a weed patch, wasn't me. I, I was this guy, a dumb guy from Ohio, that. Got famous, couldn't handle it. Got a lot of money, couldn't handle it. Didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to. So much non-musical shit comes with success that you lose track of who you are. How long did you go to those uh, AA meetings? Those meetings. Still do. At, at that time when you first started, were you going every four day? Four a day. No, not not four a day. Four a week. Four a week. Four a week. Men's stags, crusty old. Farts, men's stag meetings in the San Fernando Valley and its old book, Hardcore Sobriety. And if you want to get sober, you go to those. What was it like learning the 12 Steps program? Well, I had to trust my sponsor. I didn't know what, what it was. I didn't know why, but I did. And, and, and... That's as a pro, as a result of that, I had my spiritual awakening, and 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 I just want to get back to that. Uh, I realized that I was this kid who had given all his part to the alcoholic mind for twenty years, and just stood stood beside that and just watched what happened, and so the kid. I took my power back and I told my alcoholic mind, I'm not doing this anymore. And I have a new higher power now. And it's 
God and I'm going to trust God. So vodka and cocaine are not my higher power anymore. I'm not using it. I'm not listening to it. Uh, my life has gotten turned around and gotten better because of what I'm doing. And I'm not going to stop. So, Joe, this program that you're involved in completely opened you up to begin to see a brighter path. I mean, if I ask Victor, Drew, and Jason, what what programs did you guys are you in now? Or how did you find that also? I mean, Joe's story is this is so inspiring that he has... He grabbed a hold of the reins of his life. He found that program. Victor, what was it for you? Uh, it's it's NA now, but it's funny. Uh, you know, Joe and Dallas took me to a meeting when I, w- I went to Exodus 2. Uh, and I got introduced to, to the program. And then after relapsing from there, I went to another place called Impact. And that's where I met my, my sponsor, who was an NA guy. And for me, I liked NA, it was smaller, it was dirty. Uh, but the most important thing is really to find a, pro- a program in the fellowship, because for me, that's what's worked, 12 steps. Just merely stopping using wasn't enough for me. I needed to have, be around other people. Like Joe, Joe said it all. It's really about the fellowship and finding other people that have been through the same thing. Because we walk through this life thinking that we are terminally unique. Right when there are tons of other people going through the same shit, maybe the stories are different, but it all boils down to the same things. And I would implore anybody out there, just to you can, especially right now, you can audit any meeting. You can go on an AA website. You can go to look up any websites, uh, and just audit a meeting. And shit, if you don't want to have your video on, even you could listen and just see if that, if anything speaks to you. But I think 12 steps is imperative for me. Well, how amazing, how inspiring. And just, just to, to, to know the fact that you that you found that path. Drew, what about yourself? What what kind of programs did you oh, I, I got to bump in. I got to jump in here and say that uh, I have to go. Uh, I'm going to bow out. But I, I want to say that, Victor, I have the highest amount of respect for you and your work. I, I hope uh, we get a chance to work sometime. But uh, Drew and Jason are two of my favorite musicians. I have the highest amount of respect for them and what they do. And you know what? Uh, uh, a blessing of the program. I never would have met them hmm. if we weren't alcoholics. And, and I love having them in my life. They're brilliant musicians. And there's a lot of people I've met that are sober now. I, We never would have met each other if we weren't alcoholics. And, and I have a great life. And uh, I got to go. I'm sorry, it's 12 o'clock. But I'll leave you guys with that. And I love you all. And... Uh, I would recommend everybody stay at least six feet from yourself. <laughs> Until this COVID thing is over. Okay? Okay? Forgive uh, me. Yeah. I got to go do stuff, and I love you all. 
Thank you so much for your time and your energy and your story is very inspiring. Stay well and be safe. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. See you, buddy. Yeah. Gentlemen, we heard from a, 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 the voice of experience, not only experience in the music industry for what he has done and continues to do, but experience in just the life game of what he was dragged through and what each of you, you know, ha have, have been through. I mean, this is just absolutely amazing. Drew, yourself with the, with the change of what you did as far as, you know, what, what program worked for you? How, how, how'd you find that? When I got, so I was arrested. So mine was a little different, you know, I was in jail and I had basically a month of forced sobriety sitting in jail. And that was the most sobriety I'd had since I was, you know, 11 or 12. So for me, I was 27. I was thinking to myself, well, and I got court, I got court appointed AA meetings and I never been to an AA meeting before. Um, so I went to the AA meetings. Um, I worked the 12 steps and I gotta be honest, did I work all the 12 steps all the time? No. Um, and, and I can't say that I'm the best AA guy in the world either. You know, and I admit it openly, you know, I mean, I don't go to weekly meetings. Um, I stay sober. I check in. I do NA meetings every so often and AA meetings every so often. Um, but my thing in the beginning was AA. I went once a week. Um, and I was court appointed. I had to go. But I did enjoy it. And it it scared the crap out of me to hear other people talk about um, being sober for, you know, a certain amount of time and then relapsing and those things. And, and I was very pig headed and like, I don't want to be that guy. Um, whether that works or not. And it doesn't work like, you know, um, there, there's been a couple times where I've almost fallen back, uh, and, in the strangest circumstances. And I, I thank God that I had friends around me at those times that pulled me back from that. But, um, yeah, so I started with AA. Yeah. I did some NA meetings with Victor. He took me and he was always, um, inspiring and, and supportive and was just an amazing friend um, when I was coming out of this. And uh, he's always been a great, uh, you know, sponsor type person who's, who's worked the program. And, um, and I was thankful to have him in my life. And when this came up and, and we said that who was going to be involved, I was just tickled to death. And um, I mean, I haven't seen Victor. We had, we had breakfast about a year ago, probably. And uh, that was the last time I saw him. And, you know, we don't get to see each other enough. And um, and this, I think what Joe said, I mean, at least for me, um, the, the the fellowship of people can't be expressed enough how important that is, especially during this time of, you know, isolation, quarantining, all that stuff. Because I, I what Joe said was 100% right. That's when you go nuts, man. And you think like, you know, either I got this or it's all about me or whatever, those are the times that I almost lost my sobriety was when I thought, you know what, this, I, I, I'm, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to go in and I'm going to do some drugs right now with these guys. Cause all these guys in here, I, I want to party with. And they're mostly, it was just famous people, other drummers that I thought it would be the best night ever for me to go do a bunch of blow with five other famous drummers and just tell stories. And luckily one of my friends in that situation, another drummer said, what are you getting ready to do? I'm like, what? And I literally stepped out of that situation and I was 10 seconds away from blowing 12 years of sobriety, you know? Um, but I'm thankful for the friends that I have. And um, Jason is another like 
phenomenal friend and and to have him become sober and get on this path. Um, it's not for everybody, man. It isn't. And I tell people that all the time, you know, I don't know if, if you're an alcoholic or not. I, I don't. And I don't know if you got a drug problem or not, but you do. And I think that, you know, like Joe said, if you're asking the questions, if you're an alcoholic, you're probably an alcoholic. Um, or like he said, you're not probably, you are an alcoholic. Um, so I'm thankful for my sobriety and um, I'm thankful for the friends that I have to keep me sober. And I think that's something that people need to do is to make sure you reach out to solid friends that can give you good advice, not, you know, shitty friends that are going to tell you the wrong answer. So, Well, it's amazing. It sounds like in the early days when you guys got involved with all this, you were being enabled by people that wanted to pull you into it. And now that you've been through what you've been through, now you are surrounding yourself in your tribe with people that keep pulling you out of it and keep reinforcing the strength of being away from it. That's an incredible surrounding of what you have with your friends that yeah, you- Yeah, and real quick, I mean, that's how I, Taylor Hawkins from the Foo Fighters, you know, I mean, when Taylor had his drug overdose with heroin, he flew home, they can't, I mean, Foo Fighters are getting ready to open up for you too and do a huge tour and Taylor had his overdose and- you know, I was in a coma for six weeks. Um, and he flew back to the U.S., you know, went into drug rehab. And that's when he reached out to me. We, I mean, we grew up together since first grade. And that relationship began because he's like, hey, I need a sober friend and let's hang out. And we literally hung out every day. And, um, and you know, that helped. And it, uh, it helped strengthen me. It helped strengthen him. And that was um, a brotherhood that was that worked out well. And, you know, he's one of my dearest and best friends. And uh, I'm glad we have that relationship. So, And another great musician. I mean, he's just a phenomenal player and, and, and person of what he does. So let me ask this question. Jason, yourself, what was it like? Well, you know, I think one of the biggest I, – I, I, I don't want to sound redundant, but it was, it's so important to surround yourself by people that are going to make you a better person, make you a stronger person, uh, going to understand like what you're going through. Uh, and it, you know, at the beginning, like you really need to surround yourself with those people and pull yourself out of the people that you know, you shouldn't be around. Because as long as you hang out with those people, it ain't going to happen, man. It's like my grandpa used to have this amazing saying. You'd, see, you'd say, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And it's true. You you hang out with musicians that are better than you, you're going to become that better musician. You hang out with people that are in the, stealing cars, you're going to be stealing cars. You know what I mean? And so, therefore, when you're trying to do something like quitting drinking, if you're surrounded with a whole bunch of dudes that, that are drinking 24-7 partying, good luck. You know, you got to change your life, man. And, uh, I was lucky enough to have people like Drew and, uh, uh, quite a few people in the crew of, you know, my, my touring crew that had 20 years sobriety that I could turn to them and call them and go out to meetings with them and ask questions. And, you know, I think some of the best, at least for me, when I got sober, some of the best, uh, Words of advice were stay busy, do something physical, don't sit in your house on your couch. You know, while everyone, it's a Saturday night, and everyone's all going out to the clubs and the bars and seeing bands, and you're like, well, I can't do that anymore because right now I'm trying to get sober. Don't sit on the couch, man. That's idle hands are the devil's playground. 
It's like you got to keep busy. You got to have something. You got to have some outlet. If you're just sitting there doing nothing, that's rough, man. Um, stay busy. Uh, for me, a, a lot of alcohol, they take my word, this is a very small portion of it, but it was still a big portion, and it still is today, actually, is I needed to drink. So it was like I started drinking, you know, I mean, I'll drink a case a day of and I beers, and I do it seven nights a week because I have to do this. That's what I used to do. You know what I mean? So it's like I wake up four times a night to go to the bathroom every night because I pound and I, and I only do it at night because that's when I drink. I wasn't a day drinker. You know, everyone, if I was somewhere, you know, if I was on tour and we were at a festival, I might start early, but at home I wasn't really a day drinker, but I, I hit it every night hard. And so for me, I needed, I needed to do this. I needed to drink. And I still, to this day, I drink at least, I, I drink about a case a night. And that's okay, man. You know, people go, that's crazy. You drink a case of LaCroix water night? Yeah, it's totally fine. You know what I mean? It's. I think you know, Jake's it's saying too, Jason, what you're saying, and I, that, that's a reminder, and that's so true what he's saying. Because when I first got sober, not drinking alcohol every night, and I drank the worst alcohol, dude. I mean, I drank all the sugary crap, like just. Yeah, and gold, just horrible high sugar. Oh, it was horrible. But when I got sober, I needed all that sugar. And oh yeah, that's the other deal, man. Handfuls of gummy bears, still to this day. I I would eat ice cream and cake, and I gained about thirty pounds right when I got sober. And the first thing, and I talked to my sponsor, and he's like, "You eat as much sugar and cake as you want." Because you're staying sober. And I would say that to people. Don't be ashamed that if you get an eating habit of eating, you know, hey, you need sugar intake because you're not having all that alcohol that turns the sugar away and gets your bloodstream. Eat it. Now, once you <laughs> once you get – you feel like you got some strength, yeah, probably cut back on the desserts. But don't be ashamed to, to, to indulge yourself with that stuff when you're starting out, man, because you know what? You're trying to stay sober. And if having a piece of chocolate cake every night keeps you sober, freaking eat the chocolate cake, man. So. Yeah. Well, I think what people have to realize is that this affects your life in such a deep, deep way. Your mental health, your physical health, your intellectual health, your emotional health, relationships, your career. This is this is you know all encompassing of what it is. But you guys found a certain inner strength. You found something that pulled you out of it. You are success stories. Listen, you got to really understand that because the fact that you're here today telling the story. And there are tons of people from all around the world that are currently making comments, whether it's on Facebook or YouTube, that are letting us know that they are 100% behind you and inspired by your stories and now how you lead your lives. This really is huge, guys. I mean, at, at such a high level. And I think too, I mean, and I, and I don't know if I could speak for all of us, but I think we're very lucky individuals because I do have friends that have drank themselves to death in hotel rooms. I mean, I mean, we can tell horror stories and everything, but it, it can happen. And I think we're very, that each one of us seems to say at some point that music was the choice we had. And we decided that music was more important than becoming just keep going down that road. You know, and we had something that we loved so much and cherished so much because none of us, as far as I know, had relationships. I mean, some of us, some of us did, some of us didn't. I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't have anything, man. I had my car 
and the shower at the office building and some of the guys I'd see at the bar. Oh, sorry, hold my phone. Oh, come uh, on, dude. But you didn't take care of that before this thing started. I don't know how to do that, dude. Anyways, but I would say music is such a huge part that we were able to turn to and have something. And I would say that people, hey, if you don't have that love of music, find something in your life that you truly cherish. And if it's your child, if you can like focus on something, or if it's a love you have of sewing, mechanic, something that you feel like it's worth it, man. I, we're, I said, we're lucky we had music that we love so much that, you know. In regards to music, one of the most beautiful things about it is you're no longer putting anything between you and that feeling and that love of music. And so for me, it feels when I play now, I feel like I'm 10 years old or 12 years old. It's genuine. There's nothing between that feeling and you. You're not altering it. You're feeling it, whether it's good or bad. But be able, actually being able to feel is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, drugs. You know, I mean, I didn't yeah. feel that stuff because when I did blow and played drums, amazingly enough, in the peak of all the cocaine I did, I rarely did cocaine before I went on stage because I am not a drum soloist. I am not. I don't have any chops, dude. My entire career has been made on feel. Like I have good time and it feels good. And when I play two and four, amazingly enough, people are like, man, that feels great, and I get in the band, and that's that's all I do. And I think whenever I did drugs. The simplicity of what I played, I had no feeling, and it, it scared me because I didn't understand. Like, I can't chop my way out of this. I'm not going to play something crazy. Somebody says that's cool. I'm just still playing. Doom, dot, doom, dot, and and I couldn't feel anything. And but after the show, God, I could be up for two days, you know, three days, whatever it was. Um, but yeah, I agree with you, Victor. Yeah, you know, re re really quick, I'll say one thing. You know. There's, there's a lot of extracurricular amazing things that have come into my life because of not drinking anymore. Like people, my best friend and someone in my immediate family, and I'm not going to bust people's anonymity, but that once I did it, they started asking me questions like, hey, uh, you know, we'd be hanging out, going to breakfast. And they'd go, so, uh, how, you know, how, why, why, why did you get sober? You know, and, and, uh, what, what, what did you do, you know, right at the beginning? And then I was like, oh, shit, here we go. <laughs> but like, I got it. I, I know what's going on right now. And sure enough, man, I had two of my best friends get sober that like a year and a half after me, I had someone in my immediate family get sober, a, not even a year after me. Uh, and it was like they saw me and they were like, shit, if he can do it, <laughs> I can do it. Because you know it was a mess. It was like I, the, my friends that got sober, like they would. I, my bar, my garage was a bar. Like I had twenty neon lights, pub tables. K, I had kegerators, darts, popcorn machine. I had TVs on the wall. It was a full bar, and uh, it was like when when people saw that you know they, I, I remember one time one of my friends was like was one of the biggest alcoholics who's now sober. Uh, he, he showed up one time and I was already drunk and the party hadn't even started yet. And he was like, God damn. He's like, dude, he's like, when do you know, like, when did you start? And I was like, huh? Like, I was like, oh shit, he can tell I've been drinking already. And the party hadn't even started yet. So I, when my friends saw that I got sober, they were like, dude, 
you know, I can do it. And now, and they're all, and they're still sober and it's amazing. And you know, another thing that's, that's a, there's a bummer. And then, then there's the good side of it is people in your life are going to change if you get sober. It's just the way it is. It's the way it is. There's no way around it. You're going to have, and, and there's going to be people that fall out of your life that you're going to be like, Man, I never saw that person falling out of my life. But now that I look back on it, yeah, I guess every time we hung out, we were drinking, I guess. Like, I never really noticed that. But now that they're not in my life anymore, and then there's people that come into your life that are, like, the biggest blessings ever. And you could go, I would never be hanging with this person if I wasn't sober right now. And so there's so many neat things that happen in your life, positive things that just happen not not like you're trying to get this to happen by quitting drinking, but when you when you do quit drinking and partying and ruining your life, your life really is going to change a lot. And I got to tell you, the positives outweigh the negatives, you know, twentyfold. So it sounds like you know, in in this abusive mentality, there was this negative spiral just constantly pulling you down. And then when there was that pivot point that made you change, this positive cycle has continued and taken its place. And it seems like you guys are on this positive cycle so healthy at so many levels, mentally, physically, emotionally, and intellectually, that it really is inspiring for you and for us at so many levels. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, 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 we're, just, we're lucky to be where we are. And I, and I, you know, I look at, I look at people that, you know, I, I pray for, you know, that I just sit there and go, you know, I, I hope they, they they find you know sobriety and 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 then I look at people that I didn't think had a prayer of getting sober and they did and I look how awesome their lives are right now and I go dude there's only one common denominator there really is you know and Joe told me right when I got sober Joe gave me a couple great pieces of advice well his first piece of advice was this he was the first, he was my first sponsor and when I reached out to him first, cause I didn't want to reach out to other people that were sober at home because I was like, I didn't want them to think that because I was like, I don't, I didn't really think I could get sober. So I was like, I didn't want to let the people down at home. Like in my, hey, I'm quitting drinking. So, and then go, well, maybe I'm not going to be able to pull this off. So I'm not going to tell them. So I reached out to Joe and Joe said, okay, listen, here's the deal. He was out the Eagles. I was on tour in Australia. He goes, we Eagles get home in a week. We're going to meet for dinner. But he goes, I got one word of advice for you. He said, if you feel like drinking before I see you, and I'm waiting for this, this, this golden nugget of advice. And he goes, just don't do it. <laughs> I was like, that's it. Don't do it. I was like, come on. But he said, he said one awesome thing. And I remember it forever. Um, and, I'll, and, and I think of it all the time. And, and people can think of this as well even though you don't know Joe, but it, it's, it was awesome. He said, he said, Jason, he goes, here's the deal. If you feel like drinking before I see you, he said, call me up. And if the reason why you want to drink is good enough, I'll drink with you. And he goes, if it's not good enough, then you, and, and you don't think that I'm going to drink with you, you probably shouldn't drink either. And I still think of that all the time. Going, if I'm if I'm going, oh man, I'm getting stressed out. Shit, man, you know stuff's crazy right now. And I, you're thinking about, you know, huh, do I want to drink? I sit there and go, if 
I called Joe right now and said, hey, Joe, this is what's going on in my life right now. Would you drink with me? Would he drink with me? And I've never had a moment where I'd say, yeah, he would drink with me. There's no way he would drink with me. So I go, yeah, he's kind of, that's kind of my gauge. And I, you know, it's, it was a great piece of advice. So by going to the meetings and by hanging out with people that have that kind of support, the relapse isn't as obvious or, or there for you, it sounds like. It sounds like you're able to control it a little bit better. Yeah, I mean, one day at a time, right? I mean, one day at a time. I'm, you know, I, I would like to say that all three of us are going to be sober to the day we die, but one day at a time. You know what I mean? It's like you. This this is this is part of the journey, and this is you know, at least for me, I'm gonna speak for myself because everyone's got a different journey. But you know, like I need I need to to be I need check ins, and I I need you know to I need reminders, and 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 I've also kind of programmed myself personally for certain reminders not so much like i need to go to an aa meeting it'll be like i'll look at someone who's in a horrible place in their lives and it's obviously because of drinking and i can use that as a tool for me going this is why i don't want to drink anymore yeah you know i've learned to, to turn certain situations into my own personal uh you know personal inventory check you know going hey, look, check this out right now. I mean, this, this will be me for sure and really fast, you know. And, and, and like Joe said, the other thing is that, you know, I've, I've, I've never, he said, I've never seen an alcoholic who kept drinking and his life got better. You well, know? When you speak about it, that's why I say there really are no success stories here when you think about it. But yeah. let me say in, in closing, gentlemen, I mean, this is, this is so incredible. And I'll start with Victor. Victor, what would you say to someone out there that's listening that is is you know really kind of confused or starting to relate to the conversation? What would you say to them, younger, someone older? But for the same reason, what would you have said to your younger self with the knowledge that you have now? Yeah, I would just say, one, you, I would check out a meeting. Just check it out. Uh, and the thing that I love about the program it's funny, it talks about God and a higher power. And at first, even though I was brought up Catholic, I was put off by that. Uh, and the beautiful thing about the program is it says higher power, a God of your own understanding. It could be uh, music. It could be anything you, you think of. Uh, but I would just check it out and see if anything resonates with you. And it did with me, and it took me a little while to get it after that. Uh, but I love where my life is at. And my life is filled with people in recovery. I talk to people every day that are in recovery and it's very important to me. Uh, yeah, so I would just say, man, go check it out. There's tons of resources. You can write me, you can look up AA meetings, you can look up NA meetings, CA meetings, MA meetings, there's a million meetings. Just audit them, check, them, check it out. Victor Indrizo, thank you so much. Very, very well said. Jason Fries, what would you say to a younger you or to the people that are out there listening? I would say, you know, again, and, and not trying to sound redundant, if, if you think you have a problem, you, you probably have a problem, you know, and don't compare yourself to other people. Uh, you know, take personal inventory. And, you know, I think one of my only regrets with stopping drinking was that I didn't do it 10 years, 15 years before, you know. And I, I, I want to say one thing before this is over, because this was a really big piece of 
advice that helped me a lot too that actually Joe again told me when I quit drinking. I was talking to Joe and we were talking about AA meetings. A lot of people get really bitter and shitty against AA meetings. They go, oh, I went to this AA meeting and it sucked and it was all these people that from the halfway house and I had nothing in common with any of those people and, and it's I, I left feeling worse than when I walked in there. And a lot of people say that and and I so I had a slew of some shitty meetings and I was talking to Joe and I said, he said, how are you doing? And I go, ah, you know, uh, I was like, you know, every once in a while I had a great meeting and I'll leave and I just feel like a million bucks. And then I'll hit a meeting the next day and I go, God, this makes me want to drink. You know what I mean? Like, like hearing some of these stories and Joe gave me this piece of advice that still to this day helps me so much. And he said, for, for, for people who are out there who might be going to an AA meeting or checking stuff out, uh, and you maybe hit a meeting that you're not connecting with people. Joe said, when you're in one of those situations, you have to learn how to concentrate on your similarities rather than your differences. He's like, you could be, there could be some guy in the room and he sits there and he goes, I make $8 million a year. I'm the, I'm an executive for Microsoft and I do a pound of cocaine a day. I've been in prison in and out of prison and i and you go who is this guy like i have what's what's going on here like what but if i concentrate to what he's saying at some point i'm gonna go oh yeah i did that or oh yeah i i, I was there too i oh well, yeah i did that but i had at the beginning i kind of got jaded to aa and I, I i was like god I just these people are bumming me out and then when joe said to me he's like you need to learn. It's a skill. You have to learn how to concentrate and focus in on your similarities rather than your differences. The second I did that, I would listen to some girl or guy talking and sitting there going, oh, God, dude, this is this is killing me right now. But then they would say something and I would go, oh, yep. I'm, heck yeah, man. That happened to me yesterday. You know what I mean? And then once I, once I reprogrammed my brain how to approach an AA meeting, which I think is incredibly important to anyone who hasn't been to AA before. Having that, that nugget of, of, of advice, of knowledge is, is incredibly important. Well, this is great advice, Jason, and not only great advice in the substance abuse area, but this is great advice in the politically abuse area where we are right now. Yeah. Divide of where we are in the country to let us try and see if we can learn from each other and have a larger degree of compassion, which allows us to feel what other people feel. Boy, great point. Jason Fries, thank you so much. Yeah. Drew Hester, what would you say to the to a younger Jew or to someone that's out there that is just looking for some kind of a they're lost and they're waiting for that amazing grace song to be sung? Yeah, I you know, um Victor and Jason both said. I can repeat again. I think one important thing is, yeah, get to a meeting. Like, uh, you know, going to a meeting, it just, it's just nerve-wracking, man. I hated my first meeting. I went. Um, like I say, keep coming back. I think you got to keep coming back and give yourself a chance to get to get used to it. You will get into bad meetings. Um, and I think the, the more you put into those meetings, the more you'll get out of it. If you sit in the back row for an hour and just listen – that's okay. Do that in the beginning. That's what I did. I didn't speak. I didn't raise my hand. I didn't want to share a thing about my problem because I didn't have a problem until I sat there long enough and realized, 
wow, all these people speaking are just me and I need to share. And I started to share. And once I started to share, um, it opened me up to start talking and having that conversation. And I think um, if I saw myself as a, as a younger Drew, um, I think I don't want to tell myself that you're worth, you know, you have worth. That, um, you're important. <laughs> Maybe you don't feel loved or, or that, but you are loved. And, um, and that you open yourself up to being okay, that um, you're in a bad place and take one step at a time, a baby step forward out your door a baby step of getting to a meeting, a baby step of sitting there and listening, a baby step of uh, accepting the situation. And I think um, that's what I tell myself if I was younger. Like, just it's okay to be a total fuck up. Know that you're loved. Know there's people out there somewhere that care for you. And um, and yeah, that's, I think I was going to tell myself, I, I think what Victor said, get yourself to a meeting at Jason. It, it's, it, it's free. There's no judgment. There's no, nobody's going to look at you. It doesn't matter whether you look homeless or whether you look like Jason had a guy at a CEO. Everybody's there for a reason. And be open-minded to that and get yourself in there. I think part of the isolation and everything, Joe kind of spoke about some, I think it's important to reach out to each other. Really, and I think it's important for people to learn to listen in this political environment. Like you said, man, country's in a nasty place. People need to accept that other people have different views, and it's okay. You know, whatever your political view is, but um, we need to get back to listening to each other and, and calm down and, and do that. But that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> Thank you, Drew Hester, so much. You know, there's an, an interesting saying that I discovered many years ago. We use steel to sharpen steel. Steel sharpens itself. But it truly is man that sharpens man. And I believe in this moment, in this discussion that we have gone on for almost 90 minutes, it's been amazing that what you guys have opened up and what you have shared, not only does it show your value and not only does it show your worth, but it shows your greater sense of respect for each other and for yourself and for the highest sense of integrity, which is what we have in our reputation and our purpose in life in which to deliver. You guys have delivered that well today. And if somebody is not emotionally moved by anything that has happened in these past 90 minutes, they are emotionally dead. So it comes down to tapping into the fact that you guys have dug down deep into your heart. You've shared some incredible information. I don't think I know of any other company like Veda that would choose to have this kind of a discussion and open up and bring us together to have this discussion, to hopefully go out there and throw a lifeline to people that see the fact that there is a positive path to healing at the highest level. And when you begin to heal, then you can take someone else with you and heal them. That's what you all have done today. On behalf of Victor Andrizo, Drew Hester, Jason Fries, and of course, the great Joe Walsh. I thank you all so much for your time, for your effort, and your spirit. And thank you so much for sharing that today. Thanks, Don. Thanks, Thanks Don. Thanks, Don.
Thanks, guys. Thanks for fantastic. You know, this really has been fantastic. We speak about the depth of mental health and substance abuse. This is really something which is not discussed as much, and there are thousands of more questions that came in from people around the world that we could have gotten to. So maybe this needs another part two to go into it and have more discussion about it because this is so deep to have these four people come on here and share the depth of their life with us. And they share that because they want you, the listener, to find a path and to secure your life at a higher level and then share that with others. Empower yourself and then empower others. And this is absolutely fantastic. Well, again, thank you guys so much. These Tuesdays at 2 o'clock. I love these Vader Live Tuesday to 2 o'clock sessions because you never know what's going to happen. And next Tuesday on the 24th, we're going to have Mona Tavakoli, a phenomenal, phenomenal player. And she's with Jason Mraz, who's another phenomenal musician. We'll talk about some more ideas. We'll talk about some more things. This is so great to have this time together. I thank you all for joining us wherever you are around the world. This will be put up on Vader's Facebook page and, of course, their YouTube channel. So go to subscribe to the Vader YouTube channel, and you'll be able to watch this again and again and then share this link with everyone else. Let's start going out there and sharing these wonderful stories and bend this earth into a better place. I thank you all for your time. On behalf, I'm Dom Famularo. Stay well, stay safe, and I'll see you next Tuesday. Bye-bye.